a key for me in terms of like a lot of things that we've talked about in the program is like, how do you mirror the traits that you want to become? Because it's like, I think that's really important. It's like you have to have good process and then the results will come. And I think you've talked about that with me a lot sometimes as being a student. It's like there are things you can control and there's things you can't control. And it's knowing when you goal set, what are those things that you can control and what are the things that are outside of, you know, of your potential opportunities. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Madden Matthew. Matt Allen is a longtime student of mine in the Optimizer program. We're going to hear all about your journey, which has now led us to also having a conversation with Matthew Gentile, who is the writer, director, producer extraordinaire that has made the movie American Murder a reality. And today's going to be a really interesting conversation because generally when I do student case studies, it's a one-on-one conversation between me and one of my students. But Matt of the Matt and Matthew pair, so Matt specifically, when you came to me and talked to me about how you were using the outreach strategies that you had learned to get your film in festivals, and now Matthew is a convert of all this, I thought, how interesting would it be to tell your stories both from the perspective of just a student case study, but more importantly, how the lessons you learned have extended benefits far beyond you and to others that are around you, and now to many other people in both of your ecosystems. So on that note, Matt and Matthew, pleasure to finally have you on the microphone today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. 
So I, I, it's, uh, it's always a challenge managing a conversation with more than one guest at a time because I always feel really bad about how do I make sure the conversation is balanced and not leave anybody out and who do I start with and who goes next? We're just going to turn it into an organic conversation. But I think the important place to start is the origin of the movie that we're going to kind of center all these conversations around. So I'm going to start with you, Matthew, and I want to talk a little bit more about your journey to become a filmmaker and a storyteller and where this idea idea for American Murderer first came from. Sure. Uh, once again, thank you for having us. Thank you for that info. And um, yes, we are big students of yours. So uh, it's not, not just small students. We are huge. Matt especially, but we you know your strategies has helped us tremendously. And I, I wish I learned them a decade ago, but I'll take them from here on. Um, so starting with my journey, um, you know, I want to be a filmmaker since as long as I can remember. I, I'm one of those, you know, who is walking around the video camera at 12, making movies in class and whatever. Um, you know, I always loved movies as a kid, you know, growing up when I was 12, I think my father showed me a lot of movies I should probably not have seen from like Dog Day Afternoon to The Godfather and Goodfellas and films that just really spoke to me. I always loved film noir and stories about anti-heroes, um, you know, as well as stuff like James Bond and you know, those, those kinds of cool action thriller kinds of things. So, you know, I grew up knowing I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I kind of went in and out of different things as one does through their teenage years in high school. I was into acting at one point, I was into writing. So it was kind of all swirling around, leading me towards directing without me really knowing it. Um, when I was 14 years old, I first had encountered the story that became American Murder because I wanted to be an FBI agent as well, another childhood dream I had. Um, and I used to go on the FBI.gov website. I would look up the top 10 fugitives to see you know, who was missing. And at the time, you know, I, I was four, I was a young teen in like the early 2000s. So, you know, you had fugitives like Osama Bin Laden, White Vulger up at the top 10 list. And then you had this guy, Jason Derrick Brown, who was a surfer dude with spiky blonde hair and green eyes, you know, just didn't really fit the bill. Um, and his mugshot made an impact on me. It was a visual that just put its got into the subconscious and stayed there for a long time. Cut to 14 years later, I went to film school at AFI where I met uh, Matt. And, um, you know, after I had graduated, I, you know, had the persistence to make two shorts that uh, did well and the luck to have them be well received. Um, but, you know, putting these two shorts out there on the circuit and, you know, I was kind of struggling to figure out what my first movie was going to be. Um, it's a very big thing for a first time director. You have to figure out what is that first feature? How's it going to announce you and you know especially today and you know even the last few years you know directing jobs don't really come around a lot you know especially when you're at the emerging level it's very hard to get yourself on movies so you know for me i realized pretty quickly that if i wanted to make a movie that was going to be my own voice and was something i wanted to say and was the cut film really that i wanted to see i was going to have to write my way into the director's chair so to speak um, and, you know, I was kicking around. I was like, hmm, like, what could that first feature be? You know, I had a few different ideas. And, you know, all of a sudden, one day I, I was uh, storyboarding for a commercial that I was going to shoot that I was directing. And I was drawing out the images on my couch and I had the TV on and the face of Jason Derrick Brown just popped on my TV. And I just looked at it and I said, oh, this is so weird. And I, I, I turned the volume up and he was on the covered on the show American Greed, a true crime docuseries. And I just couldn't believe that he was still missing. I couldn't believe that he 
like had eluded capture this whole time and was this charismatic con man. And as I started to watch the story, I just said to myself, I feel like a movie about this guy is the kind of film I grew up loving, the film I would love to see. And I just became completely obsessed. And at first I thought maybe I would try to write the script on spec and sell it because it might be too ambitious for a first movie. You know, there's kind of like principles of what you should do on a first film and you know maybe don't do something with 27 locations and action set pieces and you know an ensemble cast (laughs) all these things which we did for ours so you know we really were you know i I knew so at first i thought maybe i'll just write it but as i wrote it i said to myself i i have to direct this there's no way i can let someone else have it so you know i just became really obsessed with it obsessed the story and kicked the idea around you know i was lucky to have you know, someone like Matt, who was really in my corner, you know, I'm Matt, I'm my cinematographer, Claire Robinson, and, you know, like, people who just really believed in the project and, and me as a director, you need that in a collaborator, especially with, with someone like Matt, who's as an editor just has your back. Um, but, you know, it, it took a while for it to get off the ground, but, you know, we I, I wrote the script, and I want to say in 2018, the first version, and was kicking it around with not much luck and not much response, not a lot of people were really, you know, interested in doing a true crime film about a bad guy. I just didn't really, you know, it wasn't the easiest sell on paper, so to speak. I went, you know, off not getting the response I wanted. I went and did a, a proof of concept short where I shot one scene from the movie. Um, and an actor who appeared in that short happened to have a TV show that came out at the time that was quite big on Netflix. And that started to get a lot of interest in the project. And Producers were then kind of starting to more come towards me, but some producers wanted it without me directing it. So it was this big kind of mess. It was very hard to, you know, figure out what, what was the best way to go. And then finally, you know, and I was saying early 2019, two producers, two production companies converged on me at the same time about the script. Um, Trailer Picture Show Company and GG Films. And we went through a really lengthy development process. And um you know, where we were, where I was working on the script. I was, it was my first time getting paid as a writer, as a screenwriter. And, um, you know, we were trying to figure out when we were going to go out to cast this movie after about a year of development. The world shuts down March 2020. And now we're thinking, how are we going to make this movie happen? And we really didn't know. But, you know, I, in March 2020, when the world shut down, the person I spoke to the most was the man in the box below me, Matt Allen. And he said, to him and i said to my cinematographer and i said to you know my brother who became the composer of the film i said everybody who we really you know my, my core team which is really the, the, these ones i said we are going to act like the movie is shooting tomorrow and we are going to act like the movie shooting tomorrow and let's just pull up in our apartments and whatever we're not doing whatever we need to do to pay our bills let's just work on this and it was really cool to see because with matt especially early on like march april 2020 matt came to me you know matt is a you know, he's going to give you his background, but he, he's too humble to say he's a superstar wunderkind, you know, film editor at AFI who was one of, you know, picked by the top editing editor teacher to come assist him on a Disney film right out of school. And then, you know, won an ace and Brennan fellowship that like, I don't even, I can't even tell you how few people get this thing. Like, you know, he won this all, he had all these amazing stuff for me where he was like, I could do pre-visualization in my apartment. Like I won the software from this Word thing we could we could be designing shots right now and so you know in this pandemic time and like we were just shut down and locked up like Matt and I would come over to Matt's house you know on the weekends and we would pre we pre visualize the movie and he got me directing again and you know that energy that like 
you know, creative spark really kept us going. And then sure enough, you know, the world was still in crazy lockdown, but June 2020, we landed our lead actor after persisting, making offer after offer. We finally found the right guy creatively for the project and was a good fit in general. And uh, Tom Pelfrey signed on to the movie. And then sure enough, while Matt and I were really keeping this project alive, the project just really started to build buzz and momentum. And after Tom Pelfrey came Ryan Philippe. Ryan Philippe brought, you know, he got a Dina Menzel interested. That led to Jackie Weaver coming on. And before we knew it, we had this amazing cast of A-list actors coming to be in our movie. And uh, we ended up shooting the film in December 2020. And it was a really, you know, crazy fast thing that, you know, it was a slow burning thing that all of a sudden happened super fast, you know. And that's often a story, right? And why you guys say the four, that, the four letter word with L, you know is that it was like a lot of persisting. It was a lot of being told no. It was a lot of obstacles. And, you know, it was like that after we shot the movie too, you know, finishing the movie and then putting, you know, editing it with Matt and, and, and not just editing with Matt, but also, you know, the year after we finished, like getting it out into the world, getting it seen at festivals and getting it seen by critics and getting it, you know, all the, the movie really like, other than getting the amazing cast, we really, Matt and I always joked that we really never had a break. <laughs> like it was always like every time we got something, it was like, and now the bar just been pushed up a little further. And now the bar just keeps getting pushed. And so it was a really, uh, you know, intense, crazy experience, but I'm glad, I'm so glad I got to do it. And I'm glad I had this guy here because we really, you know, he was my partner in crime all throughout. Amazing. There are about a million and a half threads that I can pull on this, and we're going to pull on several of them. Um, I'm going to rewind all the way back to the beginning of it first. And Matt, I promise I will get to you in a second and you'll have plenty of time. But there's one additional question that I think is going to really factor into a lot of the things we talk about as far as persistence. What I find really interesting about this is that when I was 14 and I had access to the Internet, I was going to boobs.com. And you're going to FBI.gov, right? So what, what what I'm curious about, what specifically was it that the, the obsession with the FBI and with these agents, and the reason I bring it up and I want to frame it is that um, it can sound like it's something unique to you, but I think a lot of or most creatives have an obsession or an interest in something, but a lot of times they have a hard time actually turning it into something else. And you said, I want to be an FBI agent, and maybe I'm not going to end up being an FBI agent, but I can combine this passion for this with my passion for storytelling. So what was it specifically about this kind of story that resonated with you? It's very interesting. You know, um, you know, I remember my grandpa died when I was quite young, but we were very close. My Italian grandfather, Joseph, on my dad's side, and he showed me 007 when I was, I think, eight years old. And I remembered loving the romanticism of a secret agent. You know, now the FBI agents, as I've learned, <laughs> in the years since, they aren't exactly quite like Bond, right? Most of them, in fact, are not, a, you know, there's very few field agents and whatnot, but the romanticism of being an agent, someone who fights crime, um, you know, crime stories, man, I've been attracted to them since forever. It goes back a really long time. I mean, like I said, you know, my father showed me Dog Day Afternoon when I was 12. And, you know, I always loved the relationship between the cop and the criminal, the sheriff and the outlaw. And I also grew up loving Westerns, which probably doesn't come as a surprise. So, you know, gangsters, criminals, like for me as a kid, I wasn't into the normal stuff. Um, you know, most kids my age were into Pokemon or baseball cards. I was into gangsters, pirates, criminals, con men. You know, that was kind of my, those were the stories I was just into. And I think 
you know, I always believed also in a sense of, I had a strong sense of justice as a kid. I was always someone who said, that's not fair. My mother being a Russian Jewish mother, go, the world's not fair. <laughs> I mean, that's not fair. I would get really upset when things weren't fair. Um, and I think I saw something in that as, you know, the prototype of the FBI agent was somebody who could bring justice, you know? And I think that certainly is felt in um, our movie, you know? And I think actually Ryan Phillippe, who plays uh, Lance Lysing, also uh, was very, is very into the FBI website and the top 10 fugitives I, I learned. So you are right in that there are a lot of people, creative types who are interested in this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of studies about true crime uh, that I'm learning now. I've been doing some true crime talks. I was on CrimeCon recently. They had me and you know, they actually say there is a link between true crime and empathy, like people who are into true crime. Like when I remember being like a teenager when uh, I think it was in high school when the Virginia Tech massacre happened. And, you know, there were shootings before that. Now they're unfortunately way more common. But, you know, that rem I remember that being a real watershed moment like that. Oh, like, you know, because Columbine, I was so young. When that happened, I remember hearing about it, but didn't really register. And then Virginia Tech, I was like high school, going to college, and then this thing happened. And I remember that was like the first time I ever did like an internet rabbit hole where I was just trying to read everything I could on that case. And why did this happen? You know, what, like, how did this kind of thing happen? How did this person snap? And now it's become way more, way more common, unfortunately. But, you know, the, um, I think there is a link between that, you know, and, and, and the interest in true crime, I think, can really apply to anything. You know, it's like, it's characters, it's people. It's like, why do people do what they do? What makes them tick? Um, you know, and I think that's why I love movies. I mean, even like, I think a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, which I saw for the first time when I was 12, it's my all-time favorite film now. It was not at the time I saw it, because at the time I saw it, I didn't really get it. I was like, what is, what's this guy's deal? <laughs> you know, dad, you know, when he showed it to me, he was like, the best movie. And I was like, no, it's not. Now I agree with him. I think it is the best movie of all time. And I've seen that movie 40 times. I still can't tell you what makes that character tick. So I think the detective work of uh, being a filmmaker connects with the detective work of being an FBI agent because you're trying to figure out, you know, I'm, I have recently been offered my first screenplay to direct and I'm looking at the script right now like a detective. I'm trying to break it down and figure out who these people are, what's their backstory and why are they the way they are and what made them this way. And so I think that's just part of the fun of it. I think it, it connects and prepares you in a weird way. Well, speaking of what makes people tick, that is what we call in the industry the perfect segue to my transition to the other member of this call, which is the Matt of the Matt and Matthew pair. Uh, and Matt, uh, without going too deep into our story, uh, my memory is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you came to me via American Cinema Editors as somebody that was looking for a little bit of guidance and support and just wanted to learn about next steps in your career. And we had a nice little 30-minute chat on Zoom. And then you just saw a little bit of opportunity and you just took everything you possibly could, every resource, everything available to learn and grow. And I cannot get you off my Zoom calls. I mean that all in the best way possible. You are somebody that sees the opportunity and takes it. And if we're talking about this concept or idea of persistence, what I find so interesting and intriguing about the story of both of you is that the vast majority of people that are either in the entertainment industry or frankly in any industry they would look at something like you did. We're like, oh, this this uh, true crime story about Jason. That's that's really cool. Somebody should make a movie about this. Uh-uh. You guys were like, we're going to make the movie about this. And all of these obstacles along the way. So, Matt, 
Tell me a little bit more about what it is about either you or Matthew or both of you that makes you the kind of people that instead of saying, I can't wait to see when somebody makes a movie about this story, you know what? We're going to be the ones that do it. It's a really good question. Yeah. So there's nothing to correct uh, there. It's, I just, you have a lot of really great resources with you and your community and the type of people that are, that are in your community that are very giving, that give advice, whether it comes to, you know, things like resumes or you're trying to get that next job interview. So it seemed like a great opportunity to, uh, to get plugged in with, um, with your community. And uh, it's, it's great to be a member of that. I would say in terms of Matthew and me, I think Matthew's got a lot of energy, as you can probably tell on this call. Uh, he's someone who really is really great. I think at the big, at the big picture and getting people really excited to get on his team. And he crafts a really great, just a really great team together, as well as he had a really great script. And I think that was kind of the two things for me at the time that really attracted me to like be on, be on this project and really help him get to that finish line uh, was the script that he had written. He had spent all this time. I knew about it for quite some time, but I had seen it evolve. And it was something I was like, this is a good script. I can see this play. And it read well, even before he shot it. And he was very passionate about getting really great cast members. Uh, and he was just really much a bulldog in terms of the energy that he was providing all the time. And then you just kind of saw all the other people that are starting to come around him. And even during this kind of maybe weird time where it's, where it's COVID, uh, we had that persistence. We kept that persistence. And at least one of the early things I was able to provide, uh, Matthew, was previs. And really the idea behind that was one of my first big jobs was working at Disney on Disney's Christopher Robin. And one of my first big job was being an assistant editor during the previs part. So it was on the previs stage, watching this all go down. Again, this is for like an 80 to $100 million movie where they have all the resources to do that. And they're spending millions of dollars on previs. So I'm thinking, how can I partner? I normally work a lot as an assistant editor. I'd spent several years as a high-level studio assistant editor. How do I partner with this indie filmmaker, first-time feature filmmaker, and provide skills that I know from like $100 million movies to this movie? How do I do that well? And Previs was kind of the first thing I thought, oh, I, I can do this. And so we were able to get a software program that's not the same um, as what they use on the big stuff. They're usually using something like Maya uh, on the big movies. We were using a, a program that I highly recommend. No sponsorship deal here at all, but it's called Shot Pro, and it's really good. And we were able to kind of make these really high-level storyboards, previs images, where you can mess with the lighting, you can have camera moves, lenses, and really got Matthew directing. And he was able to, I think, really hone in of what he needed with his shot list. I mean, we were able to like, okay, I want to spray this scene. Oh, I don't need half these shots now. But we spent all that time sitting in my apartment rather than him trying to figure that out on a set where he's got like one day per location. And that was a big thing he had told me like going into this movie is like, you're not going to be able to give me much feedback. Like I'm going to be on a location and then I got to move the next day. So like if we're missing something, Unless it's like an insert or like, you know, establishing shots, I probably can't get it for you. So we had to go in very prepared. And obviously he deviated and the actors brought so much and our cinematographer brought so much and production designer, like it was very much a full team effort. But I think having those kind of initial conversations, particularly because I wasn't on location with them at all. I was back in Los Angeles cutting and they would send me the dailies. And so we would talk over the phone, but 
I think having all that prep time, we were very much on the same page. And I think that allowed us to have a lot further like cut because we had had all those conversations. You have to still do all this work together and you have to be a great partner with the director. But I think one of the things I was most excited about this project was like, how do you take these high level skills, these high level tools that you have on these big movies and how do you go down to kind of an independent level and you empower these independent filmmakers. That's personally what excites me because like you work on a couple of really big movies and at some point you're like, okay, I know how this goes, but like empowering independent filmmakers as an editor, that gets me excited because you're giving people a shot. And it's like, how do you empower them with like the same kind of tools that the big, you know, hundred million dollar, $200 million people have, it's not necessarily have the same tool, but can you have the same mindset and the same type of prep? Mm -hmm. So one of the other things I'm curious about specific to your journey, Matt, is that I know that originally this started obviously as just an idea in Matthew's head. Then all of a sudden you get a few people on board, get a couple of production companies and eventually get distribution from Lionsgate. But I'm curious, was there a point at which somebody said, and I doubt it was Matthew, but somebody said, wait, hold on a second. We're going to get an assistant editor just out of AFI that's going to be the lead editor of this movie. Did that conversation ever come across at any point from any producer, director, distributor, financier? Uh, I think Matthew can probably speak to that more. I mean, my attitude, he can probably speak to that backstory. My attitude was I was using the previs as an audition because mm -hmm. I knew they didn't want to hire me. Like they want, he's a first time director. They wanting him to hire more experienced people. Yep. They so always want the what... veterans with the first time directors because they need somebody that knows what they're doing, right? Yeah. So the previs was kind of my way of auditioning. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my, uh, Matthew can speak to what the internal conversations were with the producers. I never really had that conversation with the producer. It was more of like, keep going, keep doing previs, keep being involved with the project. And eventually, like we got to the point where I could get a deal memo, like, but it was not, it was very rocky. And there was points where I'm like, oh, this isn't maybe going to work out. And all the previs I was doing was for free. Like it was mm -hmm. just basically, here's my gamble. Uh, Matthew is going to get to do this movie. I may not get to do it with him, but at least I've given it a shot. At least I've aired out the towel. I've done everything in my power. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But Matthew can probably also speak to what the behind the scenes conversations that I didn't know about were. Yeah, you know, it's funny because a lot of times, as you pointed out, first time directors, when they get the big first movie, the producers or the company or, you know, if there's a studio involved, they say, great, we're so excited to have you. We're going to put you with all these people. You know, my producers didn't really do that. They suggested, you know, maybe you want to work with some people who have done a movie or two before. I never, are we allowed to curse on this or not? Oh, absolutely. Go right ahead. Be yourself. I never bought into that bullshit, uh, you know, because I had seen directors who had made their first movie. I was lucky that, you know, I was one of the younger students at AFI, but it took me a very long time to get my movie made. It took, it's taken everybody I know at AFI a really long time to get their movies made. Like, I think mine was like a four and a half year journey. I think for like, you know, my other friends, seven or eight years, you know, and it, it's it, nothing surprised me in terms of how long it can take. Um, but, you know, I got to watch a lot of people go before me. Um, I watched quite a few like people in the class above me or even two classes above me. So I got to see. And I noticed that there was a unity amongst the people who had kept their teams versus the people who hadn't. The people who hadn't and kind of, you know, and I'm not going to say they sold out. I get it. Like, you know, it's hard. And, you know, so I understand. And I don't think anyone sold out by, by saying, okay, I'm going to work somebody to three movies. 
But I noticed that people who did that told me kind of later on down the road, they're like, mm, you know, they were really more the producer's person, the studio's person, and this and that. And, you know, that's not to say you can't work with people who are more experienced than you. Sometimes it's great to. Certainly every actor on this movie was 10,000 times more experienced. Me. Ryan Phillips has been doing this for 25 years, you know. So there were, you know, people who were, and I love that, but I felt strongly that when it came to my team, I didn't want to go with people who, you know, I wanted to go with my people um, because, you know, when it came to, say my cinematographer for color rums like i've worked with her since you know 2016 so having that shorthand on set really helped me and helped she understood my vision better than anyone and in terms of uh matt you know matt came in you know with previs and that's you know he was like i'm going to bring this to the table and i was very straight up with him in that and also with khalil and everybody who worked in this project we were like in that year before i was like Look, I had in my clause, I had mutual approval on who is going to be my department heads. So that's a good clause to get. You know, it means they can't make you work with somebody you don't want to, but they also get to have their say. So it's kind of a 50 50 deal. And, you know, I said to everybody, look, we're going to get close to prep and, you know, I'm going to do my best. Like, you know, we're going to, you know, I, we're going to make it happen. And I was a little like sweaty at one point because, you know, when the finance, the producers seemed to be cool with my team, but when the financiers were on, we didn't know how involved they would get. Um, but you know, once I saw Matt in action in previs, it kind of became very clear to me. I was like, there is no way I could not have this guy editing this movie. I don't really care what his past experience is. I just see that this is a guy. And also it's a lot like me. I'm a first time director. It's going to be his first big movie. You know, it's Khalila's first big movie. My brother, Scott, who did the score, it's his first big movie. It's his first movie period. So it's a lot of people coming at it with that. And I think that comes off in the movie. It's the hunger that we have. You know, it's all of us coming in. We're excited. We're ready to do this. And the producers were really impressed by them. Um, you know, they were really excited to see it. And let's be real. They weren't expensive because Matt Allen is the next, uh, you know, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. So they got <laughs> Thelma cheap as far as they're concerned. Um, you know, and... So I think it, at the end of the day, it um, it actually was something that really benefited. Um, and, you know, as movie costs now have gotten so low on independent films because the budgets just aren't what they used to be, I actually think this might become more of a trend because it makes sense to bet on young talent um, because they can deliver, you know, most of the time and, and, and it doesn't cost as much. So that's a note, my note to producers who might be listening to this, you know. Give, give the young guns a chance because they're, they're going to work really hard and they're going to try to prove themselves. And that's certainly what Matt did. And by the end of it, I mean, you know, I don't think any of them could fathom someone else doing it. I mean, he, he really went above and beyond and impressed all of them. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Well, a couple of things that I want to pull out of this that I think are really important. If I step out of the relationship between the two of you and I'm thinking to myself, I'm whether it's an editor or a composer, or director, or director of photography, doesn't really matter. But in the case of uh, Matt, right, you, Matthew, had such a bond with him and understood that this is my guy and he gets the story. Let's say I had come along, me personally. And I said, hey, I heard about this American murderer thing. I've got plenty of experience. I'm available. I would like to cut it. What I have on my resume is not going to overcome the emotional bond and the trust that you have with Matt, right? And I think it's important for a lot of people that are putting themselves out there looking for work, whether it's trying to work with either uh, first-time directors or you want to work for big-time directors, big-time showrunners. We always think it's just about the experience on the resume. It's about here are the things that I've done, but personal relationships are at the core of all of this. And the bond was there that you're like, yeah, you can send me Walter Murch. I'd be happy to do a meeting with Walter Murch. Matt's cutting my movie, right? And I feel that way right now. You yeah. Know, this is my next movie. You know, oh, like, he does kind of resemble Thelma. I don't know. There, there's something about there. There's a little bit of resemblance there. So I like that. The next Thelma Schoonmaker. Um, where, where I want to go next, and frankly, either of you can answer this, but I'll, uh, I'll balance it back to Matt. And Matthew, if you want to chime in, you guys can banter back and forth. But I'm always trying to understand what is the essence or the inception, the inception of a specific mindset or idea that drives everything. And to me, it's pretty obvious. And when you and I had our original conversation, Matthew, I went back to my notes and I had this in giant, bold, all capital letters. And it was the idea that you both told yourselves, this is going to happen. How do you keep going forwards when a million and a half things happen that tell you, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen? Maybe the, the universe is telling us, eh, this is a stupid idea. Let's just go give up and work for the man. You have the mindset this is going to happen. That's one thing. How do you keep that mindset when the adversity is telling you otherwise? I'll start with you, Matt, but I'll let you guys both go back and forth. I think that's a really good question. I think a lot of it was drawing on is honestly mentorship. I think having people that have done it before you that you can rely on like yourself or there's other, I've been very fortunate to have 
other ace mentors like Matt Chesse, Kevin Tent, Alan Bumburn, like these are big time editors. And you can like, and I'm very lucky that I can pick up a phone and talk to these people and you hear their journeys and you're like, okay, they did that. Like they had to overcome these things. Like they had to do this for the first time. Like you always have to do something you've never done for the first time for the first time if you want to keep going. So you hear these guys' stories. And I think that was motivating for me of like, okay, these guys did it. They've gotten, they've had these amazing 20, 30, 40 plus careers, years, careers. And I think that was very motivating to me of like when we would have weird things happen. I mean, it was definitely a shot in the dark. I mean, we're doing this in the middle of COVID. I was concerned all the time in the back of my head that I'm going to get a call from Matthew or some of the production, like, oh, we have half our movie shot and we don't know when we can go back. Like that was a real concern throughout this film. And then you obviously are working with an independent budget and you have to get very creative in terms of how you finish your movie well. And we had a lot of really great people come alongside us and we're like, you know, lowering their rates, dropping their fees a little bit because they saw the passion and energy and they saw that we were prepared. That's how we were able to overcome some of these budgetary things is that we knew Matthew in particular knew what he wanted and then was able to empower me and the other department heads to deliver very well. So we weren't like taking tons and tons of time that would cost money. So I think those were like two of the big things is like, again, being super prepared, knowing what you want, but also having people that can help you along the way that have done it before. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the people on your team. It does help. I was drawing a lot of like, okay, I haven't been maybe sitting in the chair, but I've been sitting in the chair next to the chair. And I've seen this modeled several, several times. So what would they do in this situation? Like, what is the editor that I've assisted for several times? What would they do? What would they do? And you hear people's stories. And we've talked a lot about the power of story. Um, Zach, you and I are just in personal journeys. And I would think about like these editors' personal journeys. And you hear them talk about in their Q&As and their interviews. And you're like, okay, you're, I'm, on that, I'm on that journey right now. I'm in, I'm in the process. I'm not at the destination, but I'm on that journey. And we're still in that journey right now. Still very early on in the career. In the career. But I think it's very exciting when you get to partner um, you know, with people who are taking risks at the independent level. Because there are a lot of really cool indie films going on right now. And I think that's the fun is like finding those new cool and indie voices. And I know from my personal skill set, I'm not a starter, but I'm a finisher. I can take you to the finish line. If you give me the ideas and some of the tools, I can take you there. And I think that's also why Matthew and I compliment each other where well in terms of our different skill sets. It's funny, you and I are the polar opposite in that respect, because I am very much a starter and not a finisher and need a whole support community around me to make sure I actually get something to the finish line. I'll give you ideas all day long. Love the ideas. Generate all the ideas in the world. Then I get about two thirds of the way through and I'm like, all right, now this is just work. I want to create and generate more ideas. And the only reason anything ever exists in the universe that was an idea that it becomes a reality is I surround myself with people that actually help me get it to the finish line. Um, so Matthew, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I would love to know more about how you, when you were confronted with the realities of maybe you're not going to make this happen, you continue to say, oh no, this is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're riddled <laughs> across the journey with self-doubt and anxiety. Um, you know, certainly, I mean, you know, this was door-to-door four-year journey more when you factor in the distribution part of it, but four, I'm counting getting the movie made. 
from idea to there and and you know it was like a college right and you kind of grow up through it in a weird way um and for me you know i remember like the first year was kind of like yeah this is the movie i'm gonna make i felt pretty certain about it but i remembered there was one i think a year in like i sent the script to a bunch of people i got all passes nobody wanted it I wasn't sure, but I still felt it. I was like, okay, this sucks. I feel the rejection, but I, I know I have to make this movie, so I'll find another way. And I called a, my mentor also. Matt and I are both big big believers in mentorship and have had the fortune of great mentors. And I have a great mentor, Brian Danley, who's a very prolific TV director, film director. His first movie was a film called Save that became a huge classic. And he always talked about his journey making Save, which similarly took four or five years. And he said to me something that really stuck, which was he said, he called me after I got the rejections because someone I got rejected from was a friend of his who he knew and we, he like had hooked me up with. And the guy was like, I like you, but I don't like your scripts. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I talked to Brian and Brian goes, you know, Matthew, I, I know this sucks. I, I was there, but I had a belief inside of me all the years that Save was going to get me no matter what. And I think you have to have that. Like if something like this, you know, knocks your boat down, then you know you don't want to get back up then it's like then you move on and find the thing that does and i think that's you know it's funny because like an idea right for a movie like this thing goes back so far right like when i was 14 i saw jason space for the first time so it was always in there and it came out right and i think that you know sometimes when you know i mean film careers are tricky you know and and i was kind of of the mindset from the beginning like you know, to be a director, you have to self-generate. You have to create your own stuff because people are just handing out jobs and yada yada. But with American Murder, I just really felt in my bones and my gut that it was a story that had to be told. And so I had to do whatever I could to get it made. And if it meant finding the right budget for it, if it meant, you know, whatever it was, if it meant rethinking it and all this. And the truth is, as a movie over that time, it just what, what really happened was it started out much smaller and it grew it grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, and I did, and I'm like you in that I'm a starter as well. I have lots of ideas all the time. I, I can't write enough of them. You know, like I'm always like coming up with stuff. And, and, and I, I also need people to get me to the finish line. And that's part of why Matt does compliment me super well, because he is someone who's great at finishing things and, and, and polishing and the details and all that. And so I know that I need that, but um, yeah, I think, you know, especially if you're a director and one thing, about directing on Save Silly. We both have a great mentor who is a uh, the librarian at AFI, no longer there, uh, unfortunately, but his name is Robert Vaughn. And I remember there's one time when I was at AFI and I, you know, AFI, we made our thesis films. Matt and I were in different classes, but we knew each other there. And I didn't get the team I wanted at the time. And I was unsure how I would like, you know, I was kind of one of the picked last films and I was doubting myself as a result of it. I couldn't get my own script greenlit and, you know, if I had a greenlighting process and I was in the library one day, just kind of almost like bad mouthing myself. I was like, ah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. You know, should I even come back? Blah, blah, blah. I was kind of being a brat. And the librarian calls me into his office, Robert Vaughn, and he sits me down and he says, Matthew, he's a nice guy. Though. He goes, if I'm out of line here, please let me know. But I've been at this school for a while. I've seen all kinds of movies come through in and out of here. And I saw you and I heard you bad mouthing yourself, like self-deprecating. And, you know, I know you didn't mean anything, like you weren't being mean or anything like that, but you're a director. Your job 
is to not only tell a story, but to inspire people and get the best out of them and to, you know, get them to do their best work. And, and, and if you don't have that confidence within yourself, you're never going to be able to do it with other people. And thinking about it now, I like want to grab Robert Vaughn and hug him, <laughs> which I, I think I did at the time. Um, you know, but it's so true what he said in that, you know, to be a director, like you have to have that belief. And, you know, and it's not arrogance. That's bad because that you know, there are arrogant directors. They usually get their comments at a certain point, you know, and it's not about the ego trip of being a director. I got the guy in, or woman in charge and blah, blah, that's bullshit. Not directing has nothing to do with that in my perspective. Um, but you have to have, I think, that confidence in yourself and the story you're telling, because otherwise you're not going to be able to get a hundred people on a set or movies a thousand to do the shot you need or to tell the story you want to tell or, you know, to inspire someone like Matt Allen, who is busy and gets, you know, high paying studio gigs and, and not films to, to, to want to give seven, eight months, a year plus of his life <laughs> to this little movie. You know, you have to kind of, you know, or get Ryan Phillip to come to Utah in 18 degree weather. I mean, you got to really like have that. So it's kind of a baseline requirement. And I would say to anyone who feels like maybe they don't have the story they want, or they, they have a story that, you know, the story kind of also has to come to you. You have to be able to let that story in, you know, because there's a lot of things that might seem appealing. I want to make a genre movie. I want to make this kind of movie. But I think knowing that something, you know, when it comes from within, and then you have to kind of, I think, harness that and then, then once you have that confidence in knowing, okay, this is the story I want to tell, and I can, then you can bring that out of people. But it's hard if you don't have that feeling within yourself. That's kind of where it gets. Yeah, and there's there's about a million and a half uh, mic drop moments in there, which uh, is really great insights. And the the two that I really want to highlight that are think are, are really important is just kind of reiterating what you said is that you knew you had this belief inside of you and you had to follow it. Um, this is something that I experience all day, every day on a regular basis. When I have somebody text me or message me or call me saying, hey, we've got this big TV show. Are you available to edit it? Technically, yes. I'm available and I could cut it for you tomorrow, but I believe so wholeheartedly in the work that I'm doing now and building this program and getting my students and creating this curriculum. Short term is a checkers move. Like this is kind of dumb. I'm turning away a lot of money. This is a lot of work. I'm basically throwing my money into a giant dumpster fire, trying to build a team around me to make it happen. But what I've told my team so many times is that I completely and totally believe in what we're doing right now. The process, it's kind of a shit show. Because I'm trying to figure out how to do it and we're making mistakes and we're not as efficient as we could be and we're not as effective as we could be. But I believe in the mission and I believe in the, the larger direction that we're going. But the other mic drop moment that I think is an even bigger one, you can't get people to come along with you and believe in you until you believe in yourself first. I mean, you want to talk about a life changing moment. It sounds like that was very much a life changing mic drop moment for you. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's someone who, you know, he's Absolutely. We showed him a cut of our movie and he gave the best notes of uh, like anyone. And um, yeah, you know, you need people like that in your life who tell you the truth also in a gentle way. You know, he wasn't like, you know, saying, hey, you, you know, he just came in and told the truth and we saw it. And it, yeah, it absolutely, I mean, it stayed with me. It stays with me all the time because yeah, you can, you know, as, and when you're in a leadership position, I think it doesn't just apply directly, but editing is a leadership mm -hmm. position. You know, producing is a leadership position, photography, and you know how many jobs out there are leaders. I think to be a good leader, you have to have that um, 
Otherwise, it's very hard to get people to come. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, of leadership and mentorship, this is going to be the the segue to specifically roping Matt back into the conversation, um, because up until essentially the distribution phase, getting into festivals, trying to get people to notice you, getting yourself on podcasts and whatnot, um, I'm I'm going to you know interject myself in the story at this point, uh, just because that's the whole reason we're here today. Um, but the importance of mentorship, the importance of guidance, and the importance of developing the skill of out reach is essential to the latter portion of your journey. So Matt, talk to me a little bit more about where uh, the things that you learned throughout the program with me started to be brought into your project and getting it to where it is now. Specifically, the most important part is when Matthew was making fun of you for your outreach formula. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think I took, I was taking your class and we were kind of getting to the, it's the advanced advanced networking class to be specific. Um, and part of it was trying to work on getting my name out there, letting people know, as we talk about, that's like, you know, yes, I've done a lot of assistant editing, but I can edit. And I think that's also a lot of that class is about mindset, how to interview well, you know, asking really good questions in interviews to make sure that you are lining yourself up for a successful situation. Uh, and maybe not just going after any job, not doing this kind of spray and pray, like being very surgical. And I definitely having the Eric's and Brennan fellowship and having a lot of doors opened up just kind of with the world I've lived in kind of Hollywood studio system of, of being able to cold outreach well really helped me in terms of gain mentorship, which was like, even during my edit, like having people that I trusted that are working at a very high level, watch our movie really helps bar none. So that was one, that was one thing Two is like, you have to start forming relationships with people who are going to help promote your movie. And so one of the big things that we were doing is like, honestly, we were just asking lots of people because it was our first rodeo. It was like, we were asking people that who had submitted to film festivals for like, how do you do this? We were talking to programmers and we weren't like going as like, we have the most amazing movie ever. We were like, hi, we're trying to learn how to submit to film festivals well. Can we ask you a question or two? Even better, could I have permission to ask you a question or two? And that'll ring a big bell to people who've done the program. But I think kind of the big things of like learning is like, how do you call the outreach well? How do you create relations with people? And I think oftentimes, you know, you want to be an editor, you want to create relationships with other editors. And that's really important. And that's kind of what we also talk about in that class too, is like, you want to be talking to people that are five to 10 years ahead of you. You don't necessarily have to be talking to the person who won the Academy Award this past year, but people that they're an expert, if they're, you know, five years ahead of you, that's an expert that you can learn a lot from. But besides editors, it's like, is there new up and coming directors that might be worthwhile that are maybe a, not a known entity that you might be able to create a bond with? I was fortunate that I went to AFI and I was able to like just be around people like Matthew. Like Matthew and I hadn't worked together ever until American Murder. So there was some convincing that had to happen. It wasn't like, oh yeah, this guy cut all my thesis films at AFI. He's my guy. It was like he had to he had to see my skills up close. And I had to believe that if I got an opportunity to work with them, that he might hire me. But the other thing too was I think the big thing is like talking to PR people programmers, um, just talking to other producers. I mean, we did some like interesting cold outreach just to other people that you're like, 
oh man, I don't think anyone's going to respond to this, but people would. Because if you write a good cold outreach email, people will respond. And I think even better, it's like, all right, if you get to have that that phone call or that like in-person meeting, it's like really value that person's time. Well, and, and come prepared, be on time, have good questions, be respectful of their time. And kind of the big thing that one of my mentors said to me early on, and uh, I have to give him credit, Matt Chesse, that I try to do well as a mentee, but also when I am in a leadership position, is that kindness is not a line item in the budget. Mm. Like that for me is what I try to do every day when I'm like, if I'm sitting in the editing chair, when I've been in the assistant editing chairs, like if that's going to be the thing, that's my thing. At least when I try to walk into a room is like there, there, you cannot put a price on that. And it's given freely. That's not, there's no, it's not because I'm on some certain project or I'm getting paid this amount of money or I'm not getting this paid amount of money, or it's my passion project or not my passion project. That's what I want to lead with. And it's like, if you can lead with that all the time as either a mentor or a mentee, I think you're ahead of so many people in Hollywood because most people don't operate like that. Wow. I love it. I'm going to create an entire bumper sticker slash t-shirt line. This is kindness is not a line item in the budget. Um, that easily in and of itself could be a 90 minute podcast conversation. Um, but where, where I would like to go next in, this is my favorite part of the story. Matthew's first impressions of my outreach strategy. Tell me a little bit more about how this all <laughs> He made fun of me so much for this. Like well, I remember starting, I'll let him go here in a second. He's laughing. But he made fun of me so much because I'm taking your class and I had done some pulled outreach and I was seeing some results. I was talking to some people. I, I, people had blown me off before or people I felt really uncomfortable reaching out to. And I was getting responses. I was like, this works. Like providing value, knowing what your story is and having a very clear cut ask. Like, yes, this works. And I would show, I even had like the whole DeFresne technique pamphlet worksheet and i texted to matthew and he was like this is the most silly most nonsense this doesn't work you got to be kidding me like are you actually paying for that class like he was all over me he razzed me for like two or three weeks and i was like just try it just try it and he started trying it <laughs> so, so yeah let's let, talk to me about that matthew i'm very interested well i'm naturally a very skeptical person and i'm usually not skeptical of things Matt Allen does. He's pretty logical and pragmatic. So I was like, but he told me about this class and I was just like, I, I don't know, man, like a class on how to write emails. Like <laughs> just write an email. Like, what do you want? And, um, you know, but I was trying to get on people's maps and, you know, get people to see our movie and whatnot and wasn't getting as many responses as I hoped every now and then someone would look past the bad email I'd written and be like, Oh, this looks kind of cool. Um, but generally, you know, once Matt really brought this to me and I realized, you know, I consider what you do um, to be kind of almost like screenplay structure. Mm -hmm. um, but you're like the you're like the John Truby of it, meaning like John Truby is the organic one. And he like tells you this is how you can do it. But he doesn't like prescribe a formula like I won't badmouth the other books, but, you know, bad screenwriting books out there say this is how you write a script and you do you direct one and you have your inciting you know and are, are you familiar by the way to, not to interrupt but are you familiar with chris vogler and the writer's journey i haven't read him but i heard he's amazing 
Yes. The reason I bring it up is because he talks about the hero's journey and broke it down into something simple. I literally just recorded a podcast with Chris Vogler 10 minutes before I got on with you guys talking about the idea of how what we're doing is essentially learning how to tell our own story. And that's what you do in outreach. So I just I had to interrupt you just because the kismet of the fact that I recorded these two together and you said that I just had to point that out. Yeah, my girlfriend has that book in our apartment and now I'm compelled to read. I've heard amazing things about it. And we yeah. talk, we're writing something together and we, and we talk about that. She talks about it a lot. And I, mm-hmm. I she's talking about, but yeah, I've heard he's great too. And yeah, I think that, you know, like what you do with emails, I consider like that where, you know, once Matt showed me, I mean, I, I laughed and I saw the phrase defresnic technique because of Shawshank Redemption. Um, but you know, it really, once I started using it and Matt showed me how to do it properly, I realized like how effective it is. And all it really is, is I see it now having used it for about, and this is not a paid sponsorship, um, having used it for like the past, I don't know, six months plus, is that it's actually, it's not a formula and it's not a script. It's putting a little more thought and care into your writing when you approach someone. Mm. You know, if there's any advice I could have for people say that for me, when I started out, you know, I would always want to meet people. You know, I wanted to fucking meet everyone. Like, and I was, I my first job in the industry was working out as an assistant at William Morris Endeavor. And, you know, Ari Emanuel, the CEO of William Morris, um, used to say cold call, cold email. And it was a very good lesson I learned earlier to do that. And I would, and I would get responses. I would get people to sit with me. But what I didn't know at being a dumb 22 year old, was when you sit down with say like I got a chance to sit down with a big time I won't name him a TV director and I could tell I was kind of annoying him because I was asking questions and whatever and you know he kind of looked at me and I I saw on this guy's face he was like I want to help this guy but I don't know how and I think if you can figure out when you approach someone whether it's an editor you want to work whether someone you want to work with or someone you want to ask advice for is Figure out how they can help you <laughs> before you approach them because everyone's really busy. Everyone has a ton of things to do. You know, in the case of like industry people, they have tons of scripts to read or movies to watch or screeners to get through. So, you know, and you stress it in your, in your work, which is, you know, make sure you know what your ask is. You know, if you're asking someone to sit down and read a 120 page screenplay, they're going to want to gag but maybe they'll read five pages, right? So think about what you're asking someone. And 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 I think, I, all I think it is, is that I think it's not formula. I don't see it as that kind of thing. I think it's just putting more thought and care into how and when you approach people. But yeah, first I made fun of Matt. Um, also, that's just kind of personality. You know. well, I yeah. would make fun of it too. <laughs> Let's just be perfectly like, honest. No good though, and I'll be like, ha ha, you know, it's just how it is. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's funny because yeah. it, it goes back to what you were talking about where you just have to have a strong belief in what you're doing because there are so many people that have the same reaction like, like I'm going to spend money to learn how to write an email. How stupid is that? Providing value, what does that even mean, right? Um, but I just, I have such a strong belief in the results that this gets and the fundamental shift in mindset about how I believe all of us can interact and collaborate together and allow the tide to lift all of the boats instead of everybody's just kind of clamoring and it's all about me and my success and my story. I don't believe Hollywood has to be that way anymore. And to me, this is one of those vehicles to get to, it's like, we're all going to lift each other up 
And what I want to hit on here that's so important, and Matt, you can go into this even further, but you touched upon this, right? It's that people don't know how to help you, right? I always say over and over again, I'm like, if, if I'm going to sell a t-shirt or sell a poster, it would say it's not that people don't want to help you, it's that they don't know how to help you, right? And this process allows you to more clearly tell your story, which then in turn does provide value to another person. Because I firmly believe the majority of people in this industry do want to help other people. But we're so shit at communicating what we actually need. You're like, I don't know how to help you. And okay, fine. I'll, I guess I'll answer some of your questions, but I don't really have time because I'm busy as opposed to I understand your journey. I was on your journey. I want to help somebody that was in a similar position. And you've made it clear how I can do that, which is actually more valuable to me. Right. So, Matt, talk to me a little bit more about some of the results you've been able to get by making it clear how people could help you. I mean, I think the big thing was like, a lot of it, a lot of the outreach was, uh, you know, how do you how do you get more editing opportunities and talking with editors who maybe have four or five credits or at a kind of a mid career. Some of them are, you know, at the more kind of fully established, but you for example, it's like you start when you talk to somebody, it's like, I'm not going to talk to them about their Academy Award winning film. Like, I'm not at that position yet, but I'm inter- I'm very interested in like, how would you get your first couple movies? Like that's the part that where I'm in my journey, where I'm most interested is like, how do you start getting some momentum in that journey? And I think that's when you can like, you're very focused and there someone can be like, oh yeah, this is what, this is what happened with me. And you can start to see similarities when you talk to multiple people. And you also, as you talked about, you get a level of empathy. You're like, oh yeah, I remember when I, you know, when I was at the beginning of my career and I was still working on getting my first couple credits. I remember how hard that was. And so it's very like focused. If you're like, you're being very clear about where am, where am I stuck? And you're asking those really honed in questions, not just like, Oh, what, like what editing software are you using? Or like, you know, what's this? It's like asking really good questions, I think will also bring about really good mentorship. And I think because people don't want a bad mentee and they don't have time for it. And most people don't want a mentee really either. They don't have like just the brain processing power for it. But I do think if you can cultivate mentorship type of relationships and you talk about in your program, there's different types of mentors. And it's like knowing what that person can provide too. It's like some people, they just don't have time and that's okay. Some people do have some bandwidth or you have similarities in your origin story that connect you more closely together. Or you have people that you just have that synergy and you really work well together. I mean, I was fortunate and I didn't really know who he was before he started teaching. But like a great example is like Matt Chesse, who I met at AFI. He came in for one year. And he taught for, he was full-time. He still has taught several years after that, but was mainly the, the department head at AFI for the one year I was in my final year at AFI. And we had worked on a movie at separate times, but we had worked on the same movie. And so I was like, huh, okay, we have a credit in common. I knew some of his films, but we just like really hit it off. And I was helping him out. I was like, whatever this person needs, I'm going to help them out because this person has a lot of experience and I want to go where this person has been. And I will say like, Matt's a really great teacher, but I felt like Matt taught in a way that was very differently than most people teach is like, it was purely osmosis. 
most of the learning I've done from someone like that and the, most of the learning I've done from great mentors is not like they sit down with you and they teach you a lesson or they're showing you this film and they're telling you what's awesome is you just have to watch and you have to watch really well. And I felt like that's what Matt did like during his year at AFI is like, you're just watching how he's handling things. You, you hear anecdotes, you hear stories, you hear how he's like talking about working with other department heads. He was great about giving us field trips and different things. And that was all part of that. It's like, how do you, how do you watch well when you're on the job? Like if you're an assistant editor, you better be watching that editor. Well, how are they, how are they doing their job? Well, and sometimes it's not a good way. And I want to, I don't want to say that sometimes you're watching someone and you're like, Ooh, I shouldn't do that. Or if I do do that, this is what happens. So it's not always like you, you don't always have the positive role model. I've been fortunate that almost all of them have been positive, but occasionally you get those where they're not positive. And so you learn. So like, Oh, when I'm in charge or I'm sitting in that chair, I want to deal with this differently, or I want to mirror what that person did. So I think that's kind of been a key for me in terms of like a lot of things that we've talked about in the program was like, how do you mirror the traits that you want to become? Cause it's like, I think that's really important. It's like, you have to have good process and then the results will come. And I think you've talked about that with me a lot sometimes as being a student It's like, there are things you can tr- control and there's things you can't control. And it's knowing when you goal set what are those things that you can control and what are the things that are outside of, you know, of your potential opportunity? It's like, you can't, as an editor, you know, Matthew has this luxury that I don't have. He can sit down and write a script. That's not what I'm personally interested in. Um, you know, he's very good at that. I, he's a really good screenwriter. And so he can generate, he can start a movie. My job is, and my skill set is a finisher so I'm not looking to, you know, start a movie from scratch and direct it. So I have a movie to edit. So you can, you can do all these things well, have good process, but there is like a, and I've had really high end editors tell me this, you're not fully in control. You have to be prepared to be in the right place and then take advantage of that opportunity. So it's not luck. It's about putting yourself in the right places and then being prepared to take advantage of that opportunity. And American Murder really felt like that uh, for me. And I felt like I was able to channel a lot of things I've been learning for many years as a studio assistant editor and bring that level of professionalism down to like an indie level. Because when you're working in indie level, you don't have all these safeguards that you have at a studio level. And there's not everything's not on the ra- on the rails and there's not like a, a super tight you know, schedule. It's like, you got to have to impose that structure on the project that you're doing. And I feel like that was something I was able to do. And I have to give credit to Matthew for allowing me to like have so much creative control and that he was trusting. I also just have to give a shout out to like all the other department heads, clear cinematographer, Scott, uh, who's a musical virtuoso, like amazing musician that we were able to collaborate so well together uh, and do a score fully remote during the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I mean, I think, I think what a great part of filmmaking is, is that, and I felt this on American murder and I want to try to take this with me is when you get a film in the can, I think as an editor, you feel like this sense of responsibility to like everybody who just like sacrificed themselves on a film set. Cause I don't like being on the film set. But they like they had their blood, sweat, and tears on that film set. Matthew's been writing this film for how many years? And then I got to take it to the finish line. But then I have all these other people 
with me in post-production, like Scott, his brother, like our sound mixer, colorists, all the other people on our team. And you feel a sense of responsibility to finish it well. Because all these people, they're not, particularly a project like this, they're not doing it for the money. This isn't like, oh, great. You know, it's not Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever, where they're able to just like spend tons and tons of money. It's not, it's not that situation where it's like a huge studio movie. People are doing it because they see your passion and they sense that you are going to take this somewhere special. So I feel like that sense of responsibility, I do not want to lose. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Good for you. I appreciate the fact that you you understand that role. And uh, I have no doubt um, that you and I are going to be having a conversation in give or take five or 10 years where you're holding your Oscar and everybody's saying it's the next Thelma Schoonmaker. I mean, just the it's a dead ringer, uncanny <laughs> resemblance. Um, I want to come back to you to, to finish up talking a little bit more about next steps and the clarity of goals, because you and I had a really interesting conversation yesterday, uh, at least as far as when we recorded today's conversation, uh, that I think at least shedding a little bit of light on that for the people listening would be helpful. But I want to put a pin in that for a second, because I want to go back to you now, Matthew, and I want to go back to this idea of the very specific tangible results that you have seen from doing the right kinds of cold outreach for the film specifically or for the next steps in your journey? I did, I think, I think I appeared on 30 plus podcasts um, or more. I think actually 60. Uh, I did 30 film related and I did like 20 uh, true crime related. So, you know, uh, 50 interviews booked without hiring a publicist for $5,000 a month. Um, so that's, that's what that would have cost easily. And they would have probably gotten me not even like maybe a 10th of those. So, you know, and that's the, to count the monetary value is not really what, what's important here. You know, it's, it's really factoring. It's also the relationships built. You know, we use that cold outreach to build relationships, festivals, the festival that, uh, gave us our world premiere at Taramina, 
um, in, in Sicily, where we got to have our world premiere in June. And, you know, the film premiered in the theater built in 300 BC. And, you know, we got to be Francis Ford Coppola, um, you know, and had I not had the courage to look up the head of the festival and write them and ask, hey, will you look at my film? Now, look, I could have just submitted it on the same thing that everyone else does, but, you know, something I, you know, and when Matt brought your cold outreach to me, it was sort of like he poured gasoline onto mm. a fire in that I've always been big on reaching out to people. I've always been big on taking initiative. I've always had no issue with that. That's not something that's hard for me. And I know it's hard for a lot of people. And I, I do understand. Um, I do understand that it can be hard and scary and whatever. But the fact is, it's just like so few people just, so many people just won't do it. You know, like, and I even noticed from a few times I've guest lectured at classes. I've like, you know, I've guest lectured at film schools and colleges occasionally. And I always give out my website. I'm going to do it right now on your podcast. You know, I always give out my website, matthewgentildirector.com. I'm not hard to find. Like, you can always message me if you want to ask me a question. I might take some time, but I'll get back to you. You know, I have inventors who can always get back to me. So I always have to get back to people when they reach out to me. And I have a couple, but I'm just always amazed how, like, very rarely do people actually write. Like, maybe one or two will here and there. And I just don't know why, because it's just so easy, you know, and like, here's a resource. And so I think the cold outreach just taught me how to really focus and connect. And, you know, as a result, like, you know, Matt, I could say that Matt and I together with, you know, targeting where we wanted to go with this movie and, you know, it applies to everything. Fest, film festivals we played at or due to relationships that we built. Um, podcasts and shows, video interviews I appeared on, Crime Con, all were because of relationships that we built. And so, you know, when you're at this phase in your career, when you're in any phase of your career, when you're at a young starting out phase in your career, you know, it is all about relationships. People getting on the phone and picking up and saying, oh yeah, I know this person, or I know that person, you should talk to this person. And um, I think, you know, if I can credit the cold average for anything, it's that it's opened up such a wide breadth of context that I now have that I wouldn't have otherwise if I had just not done it or hoped that people would find me. You know, going out and just building these connections has allowed me to, you know, now when I go to my next film and when we're in the, when we're finished with that and we're promoting it and putting it out to the world, we're going to have 50 podcasts we can up no problem, you know, and we're going to have uh, festivals we can just be like, hey, you want the movie? <laughs> you know, and we're going to have, you know, people who might want to do a story on us. And so it's, it's about building relationships. And I think that's what I think Cold Outreach has allowed me to do is and why it's so important is that it allows you to overcome that you know hesitation because you know, look there's no harm nothing can happen you you know you write me and i don't want to talk to you nothing's gonna happen <laughs> you know you're just writing me an email like i'm not gonna you know as long as it's a nice email no it's like you know you could write i i've written letters to you know martin scorsese before i haven't heard back but you know one day he'll respond <laughs> and you just keep going like you know so i i think it's just you know overcoming that and not being not letting that hold you back um, because there really is no there's no consequence you know we we wrote to the head of can he didn't respond but maybe he will on the next on our third one you know who knows <laughs> our second one um, so I think just you know learning that and, and learning how to be targeted and learning how to you know use your time well but also not waste people's time right like have a specific thing you want and need and you know and look to connect and and. And not have such an ulterior motive. I think that's where a lot of people get tripped mm -hmm. up. A lot of people think it's oh, 
networking is, I, and I don't really like the word networking. I always found it kind of like weird. Um, what does networking really mean? I just think it's like getting to know people, getting to connect and getting to have experiences. Yeah, you know? couldn't agree with that more. And what I always tell my students is that I cannot guarantee that if you reach out to somebody that you'll get a response. But I can 100% guarantee that if you don't reach out, the answer is no. Right? right. It's always going to be no, and you're not going to get a response if you don't reach out. So why not just try? Right? Yeah. What do you, you know, you don't have anything to lose, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you really don't. I mean, I could say to Matt, you know, Matt, we're, we're going to share a story that's a little personal here, but, um, you know, the first uh, batch of reviews for our movie weren't very positive when it was released. Um, you know, the week it came out, we got, you know, these like, there's these kind of, this group of critics that like you know kind of comes after VOD movies and they hound they they attacked us they they went on us and they massacred right and this was when the movie was winning awards and getting some good reviews and then this like group just like and so you know we kind of had a talk Matt and I were like well you know we're a movie that's it you know we didn't have a huge marketing spend we're not going to get a hundred or two hundred or three hundred critics to watch this movie like um, you know like uh, a Marvel movie does or a studio movie does. So what do we do now? Do we sit here and watch our, our baby <laughs> or just accept that this part of the process wasn't what we wanted? Or do we give it a shot? And do we write some critics and see if they'll just watch the thing? You know, what do we have to lose? And since then, our, and it's not all about scores, but our score jumped up tremendously. And, it, and by the way, the critics who ended up, you know, responding to our well-crafted email, asking them to possibly take the time to watch this film in a busy season said, I'm, I could hate your movie, <laughs> you know, to me. In other words, like, I might hate your film, but I'll watch it if you want me to. And I said, please do. And the reviews did get better. And some, and then there were some who didn't, but, you know, it got it more covered. And it got, and, and you know, and that's the thing is like, at first, I had a lot of hesitation. I was saying to Matt, I was like, why? Why? Like, you know, I don't know. It's out of our hands now. The movie's done. And Matt said, what do you have to lose? And that's the message I would send on. It's like, when it comes to reaching out to somebody, like, if you were doing it politely, and if you were doing it mindfully, <laughs> and you aren't trying to waste their time, you really have nothing to lose. If you're coming in and you're saying, like, hey, read my 120-page script or watch my cut right now, you're probably going to get laughed and they're going to delete it. But... If you come in mindfully and say, hey, I'm this person, I'm on my journey, I need some help. Can you help me? Like a little bit, give me five minutes of your time. That's all. And you're polite and you're mindful and you're respectful about it. Like the worst case scenario is they won't respond. And the best case scenario in all happens is they do get back to you and they say, I can help you or I can. <laughs> so well, yeah. I'm going to add to my yeah. t-shirt line and the t-shirt now, in addition to, you know, kindness is not just a line item in the budget. What have you got to lose? Giant question mark. Uh, I think that's uh, yet yet another great mic drop a moment for sure. And where I want to, to leave the conversation, I want to go back to you, Matt, because I think this is really, really important. Understanding the nuance of telling your story and where you are in your journey to get people to better help you. And you and I had a private conversation about this yesterday. And I like to talk a little bit more about the aha moment that you had in understanding it's not just outreach and I'm asking a question or I want to grab coffee and pick your brain. But the magic in this is really in understanding the nuance of telling my story and where I'm really stuck. What was the aha moment that you and I had together yesterday? The kind of the aha moment was that um, 
I think I think there was a couple things, but really that you can only be in control of so many things. I think it's like you we talked about like good process. It's like, yes, you can be doing good cold outreach, but sometimes you don't even know where you're stuck. Like, and I think one thing we talked about is like, I got to have this great opportunity of working with Matthew, but there's also a perception of like, oh, you guys went to AFI together. So you cut your buddy's movie. You didn't like have a studio bet on you. All our distribution happened afterwards. Like we basically played film festivals. We got our distribution. We had some cool companies come on and then we got out into the world. So there is, there was a part of where me being stuck of getting more editing opportunities is that, oh, I didn't have like, a big studio take a risk on you. So that's like a part of the, as we talk about the elephant in the room of a part of, I didn't realize where I was stuck. I think also a cool point to highlight as well is like, we talked about goal setting well of like how you outreach well of that, you know, you can have a goal of like, yes, I want to land this next job or next thing. But as we've said before, like you're not in fully control of that because you're, because you're an editor and you're looking for a project um, you can't, you can't fully manifest that you can have good process. You can put yourself in the right position, but you can only control of like how well you're reaching out to people, what type of people you're building relationships with. And then you just have to be prepared. And you can't, if you're all of a sudden not maybe getting the offers that you want, or you're not hearing about thing, it doesn't mean that you have bad process. There has to be an opportunity that lines up with you being prepared. So I think that was another like aha moment in terms of good goal setting. And also sometimes you don't realize where you're stuck. Yeah. And I think ultimately, if I'm going to break that down and simplify even further, which gets both very specific and very broad in general, that I firmly believe, and I'm not the first one to say it, many others have said it, but the quality of your life is largely dictated by the quality of the questions that you ask. And in your case, the question that you were asking where you thought you were stuck was, I've gotten my first credit. How do I get over the hump of getting my second? Because everybody says, oh, the second is harder than the first. And you were asking the wrong question because the perception might be, not necessarily, but it might be, how do I get my first studio credit? Because technically you got a studio film, but the perception is, yeah, but was it really your first movie? I mean, you did it with your buddy and you guys kind of willed it into existence, but you didn't deal with the studio notes process and executive producers and all those other things. So you're in a way kind of asking the wrong question. How do I get my second big studio movie? It's how do I get my first big studio movie, which, by the way, changes the people that you connect with and the mentors that you surround yourself with, does it not? Totally. So it makes your outreach a lot more, I would say, a lot more focused and it makes your questions which is you, which brings it back to that, your question's a lot more focused of what you're asking and asking people about what their journey was and what advice they can, they can add to you. Exactly. So the, the final place we're going to leave this is an exercise that I don't do at the end of every episode. There are some podcasters that ask the exact same questions at the end of every, every episode. doesn't matter who their guests are, what the topics are. I'm not a big believer in that, but I do have a stock question that I like to ask specific when it's to people's journeys and inspirational journeys and overcoming a lot of limiting beliefs and obstacles. So I'm going to start with you, Matthew. If we were to rewind to the darkest portion of this film's journey where you weren't really sure, is this ever going to be a thing? Can I make this happen? And maybe for you, that moment never even existed. But think to early in the journey. I want you to time travel back to yourself. What advice do you give now that you've gone through this entire process once? 
Well, there definitely was a part of the journey. Um, I would tell that person 29, there was a point in 2019 where it looked like it just might not get off the ground. And I would say that a dark night of the soul, if you will. And I would say to that person, buckle up, you know, because you're going to get that a million times. You know, you think a dark night of the soul is a dark light. No, it's not going to happen. Is when it, you, there's so many points in a film's process where you're just going to feel, even when you do get it, you're completely drained. You know, like you don't have anything left in you. Like maybe when you finish shooting, you're like, ah, I, I, you know, now I have to go edit. And when you edit, I have to put it out there. Now I have to distribute it. Now I have to do the press. Now I have to, and then then it eventually does just end. But I would just say to you know, to also take the time to accept that it's a process, and it's not always about nailing it, and it's not always about you know get like it takes time. This this process of filmmaking is so complex, and there's so many moving parts. So you know, I would say to that self three years ago, I guess it was you know this is going to get made. I would say. You know, we know now it did. <laughs> so it's going to get made. So now, how do you better prepare? What do you learn? What do you take along? How do you better position yourself? Prepare yourself to take that leap, to take that next step. Um, you know, and not be too tough on oneself. I think that's, you know, I, I'm sure you've dealt with that based on my <laughs> conversations with you, that for ambitious types, you know, and, and just artistic and creative types, I think we can be very hard on ourselves. And, you know, I think get, being kind to oneself in that process and a lot, giving yourself the space to do what you need to do and to let the process be and and, and take I it. I love it. Uh, well, Matt, you're going to be jumping in a time machine into a different moment because you have a different journey and path as Matthew. But if you're going to jump back into a time machine where at one of those darker moments where you may have been doubting yourself, whether it's during this film or it was when you were 19 years old, wondering if you're ever going to even go to F AFI, whatever it might be, what's the moment and what's the advice that you're going to give yourself? Uh, the moment, let's think. The, there's kind of like two two moments I can think of that they're very similar because I think the the feeling was over being overwhelmed. I think getting into AFI was a very much a feeling of overwhelmed because at the time I got rejected from a lot of other grad schools that were not as good as AFI. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to do something different or I thought I was going to go down another career path. And then I got into AFI. So there was definitely a overwhelming joy and all of a sudden overwhelming, like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be rough. This is going to be a rough two years. And it was a very rough to like, there was huge highs and lows, um, in those two years at AFI. And then I think the other one is, uh, booking my first big studio job is like, all right, this is real. Like you wanted to do this and now you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do this. And the expectations are there regardless if it's your first time or not. And I think if I would go back in time, I would just say, surround yourself with good people. I think that's really what, changes the course of your direction in life and where you want to go is the people you surround around you. I think that matters so much of the people that you're seeking advice, the people that will support you, the people that you can call when you're having a bad day. I think those people, regardless if they're working creatively with you or they're just part of your you know, emotional support system, I think surrounding yourself with really good people uh, is game-changing and life-changing. So I think that would be my advice 
because you're not, you're not, you're not meant to, even as an editor, you do a lot of time alone. I think the reason why filmmaking is so special, maybe compared to other art forms, it is collaborative. It is a team thing and you do, you know, win and die as a team. It's a team sport and life's that way too. So you might as well find a great team and have them and come alongside them and come alongside other people well. So that's the advice I would give myself. Man, for for two young up-and-coming filmmakers, you sure know a lot about life and business and filmmaking, and there's just a multitude of these mic drop moments everywhere. Um, Wise beyond your years, both of you. Um, Matt and Matthew, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm glad that you guys um, consistently, very politely, but very consistently, were good with your outreach and getting in front of me and telling your story such that I could see the value and we could get you on the microphone and we could share this story with my audience. And I think you brought a lot of value today, which I know was the the purpose. Uh, And I hope that we brought a little value to you in return. So uh, if anybody, most importantly, the whole reason we're here is shameless self-promotion. Where can people watch this movie that we keep talking about? Uh, They can watch it on Amazon, iTunes, uh, Apple, all digital platforms. Anywhere you can rent a movie, you can rent American Murder digitally. It's coming to DVD and Blu-ray December 13th. Thanks for a fun Christmas present. Nice. Uh, my last message is listen to Zach Arnold and <laughs> hire Matt Allen. <laughs> I love it. We're gonna have to make we're gonna have to make that the cold open. Um, talk about good uh, promotion for both of us. Um, I can attest to firsthand that uh, whatever the cost may be at the time, you will be making a wise investment watching American Murderer. I watched it, really, really enjoyed it. The only thing that's really weird and very insider baseball is that I could not get past the fact that Ryan Felipe and uh, Chantal were brother and sister instead of married because I spent three years working on shooter and they were married and I just I could not get those characters out of my head right I kept waiting for him to call for her to call him Bob Lee right but what so this is it was a very weird personal experience for me because I feel so connected to them even though I've never met either of them in person but to see them as brother sister I was like this is weird but that was just my own personal experience it was really really well done I never would have guessed number one super low budget you can tell it wasn't 50 million dollars but it didn't feel like super low budget shoestring budget but it also did not feel like a first-time filmmaker Thank you. So it's really well done, and it was a great, great film, and I would, uh, I can wholeheartedly endorse that it's worth your hour and 40 minutes and the seven bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it is. Totally worth it. Really enjoyed it. So you guys did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.